Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, kids aren't playing as many team sports as they used to. And I'll get a tap dancing lesson as we hear about our latest successful New Year's resolution. But first, it is Friday and that means it's time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. Bottom line is that Secretary Fontes and the uh, other members of, uh, of the executive branch are not legislators and, and therefore they cannot and should not insert their, their preferred policies um, into the, the EPM. And if these guys want to stand there and defend this as like essential to school choice, they can do that. But we're not going to not make the case because um, this is unsustainable, it's unaccountable, and taxpayers deserve better and our students deserve better. It reinforces the communication to voters that this is the way that where the governor stands on this issue. And so if you disagree, you should not vote for the governor. In the Tucson sector, we saw record-breaking numbers in December. The trend is in the wrong direction. This administration has no answers and no will to tackle this issue. This morning, I am joined by former Democratic lawmaker, re- lawmaker Reginald Bolding and Republican consultant with First Strategic, Marcus Delartino. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Okay, so it's the beginning of a new year. It is about to be the beginning of a new legislative session, and things are gearing up down at the Capitol. It promises to be an interesting one. We've once again got a Democratic governor and a Republican-led legislature with a very slim majority. But this time around, there are a few things that are very different, right? We've got a pretty substantial budget deficit looking at us instead of a pretty big budget surplus. And, of course, it's an election year. So tell me, I'm going to start with you here, Marcus. What are you looking forward to most this session? Uh, Signy die. (laughs) That would be meaning, uh, for those of you who don't know, it being over would be the (laughs) The but translation. It's, last session was the longest ever. What do you think this time? I, you know, it's an easy bet that it's going to be shorter because you can't go longer than June 30th. <laughs> so um, I, I originally was very optimistic that the budget uh, deficit would come down and we'd be close to somewhere at zero. And that would force an early session, meaning there's less mm-hmm. to fight about. If you've got no money to spend or no money to cut, uh, we'd be out in close to 120 days. Right. Um, now, looking at these uh, budget projections, I'm a little <laughs> less optimistic, and I think we're going to be there for a while. All right. So, Reginald, I want to ask about this because I- I've heard this from some other lawmakers, former lawmakers recently, that when there's a deficit, it might be a little easier to have bipartisan kind of, you know, negotiating because there's, you know, you're fighting over what to cut as opposed to everybody getting a bunch of money. Is that true, you think? Well, that's conventional wisdom, right. but then you throw in a couple of in- ingredients of uh, an election year, and then you throw in a uh, a split, you know, divided government, and then you just throw in a bunch of personalities, <laughs> uh, and then you find yourself in a position where it doesn't matter what the outcome, uh, what, what the dynamics are, it's going to still be a, a legislative session that's going to definitely still be a little bit heated. Yeah, heated. The election year, I'm sure, contributes to that, Marcus? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, Reggie and I were just talking before the show that, you know, 
probably the guy who wants to sign he die the most in Arizona and the fastest is probably Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. You know, because he's going to be spending a lot of time here. He probably wants Katie Hobbs next to him as he's out campaigning. Um, and certainly these legislators want to get out because there's probably four or five districts de- depending that are very competitive. They want to get out and start campaigning as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. What about issues on the GOP slate this time around? We've heard a lot about housing, a lot about education. What are you looking at, Marcus? I'm looking at, and you covered this story earlier this week, and I think it's uh, sort of a sleeping giant, mm-hmm. but all the county recorders throughout the state are sort of ringing the alarm bell, if you will. Um, and that is the state legislature changed the recount laws uh, last year. And uh, part of that process means more time to count votes. The, at the bottom line, at the end of the day, the counties need 19 days, more days in the calendar to make sure that our overseas military members get their ballots and those ballots are counted, Right. number one. Number two is, and this is really important, to make sure that our electors actually get seated and those votes count in Congress when we vote for the president of the United States. Right. So there's like a time crunch on both fronts. There is a massive time crunch. And frankly, for Republicans, look, let's be honest, those overseas military members are probably 70 percent, if not 75 percent Republican. Hmm. You probably want to make sure those votes are counted because these races are getting tighter and tighter in Arizona. I mean, the last, you know, Biden was 10,000 votes. Do the math here, folks. You want to make sure that gets done. So um, that's a quiet issue that I think is going to start bubbling up here rather quickly. Um, Number two is obviously we're going to have the ESA discussion. I mean, the governor's made that pretty clear. Uh, Water will continue to be a major issue. I think we're going to see – we've already seen an influx of massive amount of water bills um, Mm -hmm. already and and there's more to come. Um, And then last is, of of course, the budget. Yeah, yeah. What about on the Democratic front, Reginald, what are you hearing? Yeah, I I mean you'll see uh, similar uh, tones there, you know, particularly, you know, when we talk about housing, that's going to be a a Mm -hmm. top issue. Um, you know, that has been sort of an ongoing thing. Um, you know, water, you'll see some of the social services from a defensive posture, making sure that, you know, you're protecting, you know, the gains that you saw uh, with regards to the investments that were made last year. Um, but this will be a, a legislature in which, you know, Democratic lawmakers, uh, they're going to have an uphill battle to try to get policy passed. I think mm-hmm. that there is a hyper focus on these uh, swing districts that, you know, we know is going to make a, a, a incredible shape and in who what the outcome is going to be next year. And, yeah. and you know, uh, the Republican majority is dialed in and they don't want to lose a state government. So how much, Reginald, is this about November for the Democrats for, you know, winning a, more, a majority next time around, which is really what they're looking at? I mean, can they sort of strike a tone. I, I think that the, the, the word this week was they want to be the adults in the room. You know, I, I really think that the Republican majority has misread the public year after year. I, I think when you see this is the last, I, I want to say it's been six or eight years you've had a, a 29, 31, you know, uh, legislature. Um, and every single cycle you're seeing more incremental gains from Democrats, whether it's at the state level, whether you're closing or narrowing the margins in the House or the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's going to be a similar posture of Democrats, you could put your bills up, but they have no way of actually ever getting on the board and getting votes. I think you're going to see the exact same thing. So I think Democrats are going to try to paint a world of what it would be like if we were in the majority. Um, but at the end of the day, I think all those bills are DOA. Yeah. What do you make of that strategy, Marcus? 
I, you know, I've seen Democrats get bills through, so I, I'm not as pessimistic. I think probably as as Reggie is, and and those Democrats that do it are really hardworking, frankly, and um, and have good relationships uh, across the aisle. So I think there is some possibility for some movement there. Where do the two agendas from the Democratic side and the Republican side sort of cross? Like, are there moments, are there places where you each think there might be some bipartisan compromise? I mean, there's going to have to be on a budget, probably. Well, well, one of the things that I think that this is probably the most fascinating thing that I'm seeing at the legislature with regards to water. You know, you mm-hmm. had the Water Policy Council, you know, this and, and the recommendations that were sent there. And this is not just... Governor Hobbs saying, these are all of my recommendations. These are some of the best water mines in the state coming together and putting out reasonable policies. And when you talk about, you know, rural groundwater pumping, you know, there's very conservative members who are, you know, asking for um, some structure there. And, you know, the Democratic caucus, they're, they're there. But I, you know, there are also some very powerful forces who are who lead uh, committee chairmanships uh, who who don't want those policies enacted. But water is an area that I really think you could have some bipartisanship. Yeah, I was gonna. He stole the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I was gonna say the same thing. And I, you know, for an example, I think we can all agree, or at least Reggie and I, I know can agree that you know, probably having a foreign country have the ability to to mm-hmm. pump our groundwater um, and make profit from it is probably a bad idea. Especially because mm-hmm. it's a very rich country that's doing it. Um, so it's moments like that where I think we're going to find an agreement on, uh, especially on water. Okay, let's talk uh, about an issue where I don't think the two sides probably agree, which is the school voucher program empowerment scholarship accounts (ESAs). Uh, so Governor Hobbs put out her proposal this week about you know changes she'd like to make, ways to rein it in, accountability measures, things like that. That was met very quickly from the Republican side with you know. It's dead on arrival. This is not going to happen. What's the public conversation look like around this? So I wonder why Democrats are making this a strategy in terms of making this clearly a campaign issue. Well, I mean, one of the things that that is important to note is that you let's go back to the 2024 election. There are very tight races that will really decide the outcome of the legislature. Uh, in in those districts, there are portions and populations of folks who who do support ESAs. Mm-hmm. There are also folks in, in in those districts who don't support ESAs. So I think that when you talk about building accountability around you know ESAs, and which is something that you have to do, especially when you think about like a, a budget deficit, you know there are members of the Democratic Caucus who recognize that it it is popular in in some districts. Right. Um. So so they have to be very careful in in the posturing. But the reality is, is the program as it's currently set is is un is unsustainable, and you're going to have to start making very hard choices um, down the line. I mean, when you look at every single year after the Ducey tax cuts, the budget projections were severely, you know, under the mark that they were supposed to hit. Coincidentally, mm-hmm. that's the same time we saw ESAs begin to skyrocket and spike. Marcus, do you think that the governor in putting out a plan like this and sort of changing her tune from last session when she you know, said, I want to get rid of the program, which wasn't going to happen then either with Republicans, do you think she's sort of putting the onus on on the, the GOP leadership to sort of defend this and say, you know, this is how the program should work? Yeah, I absolutely think that's her messaging uh, strategy. And I think she sort of made that kind of clear in her in her press statements. But, um, you know, and the GOP is doing exactly what she knew was going to happen. What we all knew was going to happen was to say, hell no, uh, we won't go. So, um, you know, she's going to make it a campaign issue. Uh, the legislature's going to make it a campaign issue. And it's going to be, uh, 
you know, not to dampen everybody's dream here, but remember there's a presidential election going right. on. Your the messaging coming out of the legislature will pale in comparison to the thunderstorm that's coming in from uh, the presidential campaigns and certainly the U.S. Senate campaign. Yeah, so these issues will be minimal, you think, in the big picture? I think at the end of the day, we're going to, you know, it's certainly for the GOP, we're going to be talking about immigration. Um, and for the Democrat Party, I'm certainly they're going to be talking about pro-choice, pro-life. Yeah. I want to talk about Secretary of State Adrian Fontes and the election procedures manual that he released just recently, just right before the deadline, uh, right before the December 31st deadline, so also a holiday. It was just about immediately met with threats of a lawsuit from Republican leadership. They say Fontes is attempting to rewrite election law here. A lot of this, it seems, has to do with delaying implementation of a law that cleans up the early voting list, which was contentious, and then demonstrations and protests, that kind of thing, around voting sites. Marcus, are these fair criticisms? Yeah. Um, You know, I would argue they were, and I I would argue that um, the Secretary of State sort of has a track record here. If you you recall, when he was county recorder, the Board of Supervisors had some disagreements with him uh, over some changes that he made that they didn't think that he had the authority to do. And it so centered about where these voting centers were located. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there's some strategic advantages in putting them in Democrat districts versus Republican districts. And so that sort of um, – so th- that occurred years ago. So I, I was a no surprise whatsoever that there was going to be a lawsuit. And I don't think Reggie was uh, surprised <laughs> <laughs> that there was going to be a lawsuit filed over the election procedures manual. What's your take on this, Reginald? Yeah, there's nothing that would have been put in that uh, manual that wouldn't you wouldn't have saw the, the the other side to it. So, I mean, you know, the reality is, is elections have been a hot button topic here in Arizona for the last several cycles. And I, I, I don't remember the last time we've seen an elections procedure manual in which you had the legislature and everyone, you know, throw their hands up and say everything's all good, hmm. um, except when there was a Republican um, uh, who was the secretary of state. So, I mean, there's been a few cycles. And even then, there's, you know, some pushback. So, I mean, we know uh, that there is going to be a lawsuit. I, I'm at, well, we'll, we'll see if there's going to be a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. I, the, the cause are there. Um, uh, Fontes uh, is, is, is asking uh, for, you know, uh, if there's going to be a lawsuit, go ahead, do it, let's mm-hmm. go, and, and we'll see what happens. How does that play out in terms of the timeline of an election coming up here pretty quick? Yeah, I mean, it, it, going back to the, the sort of the story we just talked about earlier yeah. in the show, which is, you know, counties are asking for more time right now. They need 19 days to meet these federal standards. Um, and if they don't get it, we're sort of going to be on the front page of every newspaper in the country real quick, mm-hmm. which actually probably the world on this one, um, which I don't I didn't thoroughly enjoy the last, <laughs> the last cycle we went through that. So um, I'm not looking forward to it. But I think that as part of that, I think what Secretary of State Fontes and the legislature should be looking at is even if we're going to have this fight, how do we come up with this these 19 days to get these elections put on track? Yeah, the more important issue there. And also I just point out, you know, it's it is part of Arizona is becoming more competitive. These races are coming down to less and less votes. Um, and so that's why we're going to have fights like this over the election procedures manual. Right. I mean, and and looking toward 2024, looking toward when we're in 2024 now. So, so November, I should say. Uh, I mean, every bit of this election is going to be picked apart. Like there are I I was told this week, you know, war rooms on both sides already set up like it's going to be paling in comparison to what we saw last time around. How do you think this kind of thing plays into that larger context, Reginald? 
Well, I mean, one of the things that we do know is that we, we've seen this before, right? So we've saw, you know, in, in 2022, then you saw 2020 elections. I think in, during the 2020 election, we, we, you know, there was a little bit of uh, skepticism of how that would play out with it being a COVID year and things happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there was definitely an amplified uh, heightened on, you know, the election and what would happen. But here, I, I think that, you know, the, the U.S. Senate race um, will will really be uh, of have a major uh, implications on how things are playing out. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the the board across the country, um, Arizona, when it comes to the U.S. Senate, is going to be extremely important. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, outside of that, it's going to be a competitive race, too. You know, whether it's a two-way race, a three-way race, it's going to be a competitive race, and that is going to have implications um, uh, throughout the state. How many lawsuits do you think we're going to see, Marcus? <laughs> oh, I don't even think we can count that high. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be it's going to be epic. Um and that you know what's going on is those war rooms that, that we just discussed are full chalk block full of lawyers, mm. um, and so they're looking for any single possible item they can file a lawsuit on. So it's going to be the courtrooms are going to be packed this cycle. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to another big story in the political world this week, which is of course immigration. The border patrol officially reopened the Lukeville port of entry yesterday. The closure of this was a big deal for a couple of reasons. The Border Patrol had to close it because they were so overwhelmed, essentially, with the number of migrants arriving at the southern border, border-wide. It's also the point of entry that leads to Rocky Point, Arizona's beach. There's a lot of commerce and economic and trade issues at hand here. Let me start with you here, Reginald. Like Democrats, Republicans, everybody seemed to agree this was a really bad thing. But is the damage kind of done? Like it's been closed for a month. Is the political damage done, even though they're reopening it now? Uh, Yes. Yes. The political damage is done. I mean, it, it just it was it was a total missed call. Um, and, and I think that, you know, you take a step back and you look at it and you say, if you're going to if you're going to make the closure, you don't do it at that point of time. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, when you have so much, you know, commerce a- action that's happening. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, the, the the border, I mean, I do think that, you know, uh, Governor Hobbs, she has been much more hawkish on the border. I mean, you know, even when you talk about, you know, Lukeville and things that were happening, she wanted to be a little bit more aggressive than the legislature actually would let her. Um, there was some, you know, potential, you know, funding that she wanted to uh, move around and it would have needed a JOBC approval that Republicans in the legislature actually said, you know, we're actually not going to allow you to. Uh, to, to do this, Governor, um, you know, the border is an issue in which Republicans believe Democrats are vulnerable, particularly mm-hmm. at the top of the ticket. And I, I do believe that, you know, um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we hear, you know, more about the border and the governor's state of the state, you know, as she's as she's making her making her case. Yeah. Yeah. What do you what's your take on this, Marcus, in terms of the just the fact that immigration once again, which it hasn't been for a couple of cycles, is now going to be maybe the biggest or one of the biggest issues heading into this election? Oh, it will be. Uh, there's no Republicans are going to make sure you know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's a it's been an epic train wreck for and even my Democratic friends will privately tell me I cannot believe how this White House has <laughs> underestimated this problem. Um, and it's been going on for a long time. I mean, if, if, if you wanted to message this, you would say, OK, we appointed a border czar who never went to the border. Biden's come to Arizona. How many times never been to the border? Um, we closed the Lukeville port. Um, which was it turned out exactly what we said. The other routes that were open, at least one of them is completely cartel controlled and an American citizen was shot at mm-hmm. um, and almost died down there. So it's just it, – it, it's an epic train wreck and they seem, they seem to be messaging that they don't care is, is the bigger 
concern here. And if I were, I know that um, at least Mark Kelly and Kirsten Cinema are privately telling the White House, you better do something or you're going to lose Arizona. And I would argue I think it's too late. I mm. think I think that Joe Biden might have just lost Arizona based on the border. What do you think, Reginald? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a little little bit uh, an aggressive opinion there. I, I, you know, with, with that being said, you know, I, the border is definitely an issue. And when you look at, you know, you, you survey the population, you know, it, it's there, but it's not the number one issue for Republicans. Absolutely. There's mm-hmm. a lot of other things that I think you could take a step back and look at. Uh, and I imagine also when you, you think about here state politics, I imagine that the governor and her state of the state, she'll probably talk a lot about the economy, companies coming in. And, you know, here in Arizona, you are seeing, you know, the, the economy is doing, doing well. I think that's more of an issue uh, than a border. And when we talk about the border, I think, you know, tying that into, you know, safety, security, that's all important. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I do think that at a federal level, you have to have all parties, Republicans and Democrats, who are really willing to put forth comprehensive immigration reform. We've been talking about this for years. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I think this is an opportunity where some of these congressional races, I think they'll be talking a lot about, you know, the border and, and what their potential plans are and pointing fingers at both sides of the aisle. Do you think there's a potential that the the Senate I mean, and Kirsten Sinema being central to these negotiations will do something about this in terms of some kind of immigration reform before the election and change the conversation? I There's... There's a chance, but I don't know if they can change the conversation. I mean, I I hearken back to this phone call that that the governor had with Secretary Mayorkas, where she said, "Look, we're <laughs> we got a problem down here, mm-hmm. and we're gonna. Uh, I need some resources, and I want to know if I'm going to get reimbursed for all the money that we spent." And she heard crickets on the other end of the phone. You know, Secretary Mayorkas did not give a timeline for being reimbursed, uh, gave no action plan going forward, and this is a Democratic secretary. Uh, of Homeland Security to a Democrat governor, mm-hmm. um, which goes back to my point is like, I'm not too sure they care or they just don't know how to message that they care. Interesting. OK, before I let you go, just a couple of minutes left. And I, I want to ask about this uniquely political thing that's happening in Arizona this week, sort of in the political world. It's lovingly dubbed Hell Week. <laughs> Roughly, it's like the week before the session, before lawmakers are no longer allowed to accept donations. So there are it sounds like a, a ridiculous number of fundraisers. Marcus, uh, how many how many have you been to? How many checks you've been writing this week? <laughs> I will tell you, in all honesty, I've been to one. No. Oh no! <laughs> but, you know, I you get a little bit older and a little bit wiser, and there's other <laughs> ways to sort of take care of that. But uh, you know, for the legislature, they can't accept contributions um, from registered lobbyists uh, during session. And so, uh, and as most people in Arizona do, as soon as session ends, which is getting close to summer, they probably split town. So mm-hmm. it's their one opportunity sort of before session starts to to be able to raise funds for their campaigns. Is it more fun from the lawmakers' perspective there, Reginald? Absolutely not. I can tell you, like, <laughs> you know, these lawmakers, they're making the phone call, setting up the, the fundraisers. It is not uh, something that they enjoy doing, but it's also something that they know that they need to, they need to do, right? They need to be it. able to get their message out. All right. There it is. That's it for today's Friday. Friday news cap. That is former Arizona lawmaker Reginald Bolding and Marcus Delartino with First Strategic. Thanks to you both for being here. Happy Friday. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, how learning to tap dance taught one Arizonan to be more present. But first, kids are playing team sports less often. In Arizona, around 42 percent of kids between the ages of 6 and 17 played on a team or took lessons between 2020 and 2021. 
A new report from the Aspen Institute finds between 2019 and 2022, regular youth team sport participation fell 6% among kids between the ages of 6 and 17. But kids are generally trying sports as often as they did before the pandemic, even if they're not playing them as often. John Solomon is the editorial director for the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program. He spoke with my co-host Mark Brody about the 2023 State of Play report, and they started with some of Solomon's main takeaways from the data. Well, one thing is that regular team sports participation for youth declined between 2019 and 2022, but total participation stayed flat. So the good news is that children ages 6 to 12 are casually trying sports at a higher rate, um, they're just not playing as frequently. Um, so some of that could be due to, you know, COVID-19 and the disruptions that occurred. Um, there's still interest from kids to play. They're just not playing as frequently um, as they did previously. So does that mean, for example, that there may be not like on a Little League team or a Pop Warner team or a, or a regular soccer team, but they are sort of playing these these sports informally, maybe in a park or with friends or something? Correct. It could be they're just trying it out outside with friends and family, could be at recess, could be in PE. So they're being exposed to it more, which is good. That's what we want. They're just not continuing to stay with it as much in organized team play. Is there a significance to to kids not necessarily playing like organized sports, but just sort of playing more casually? You know, it's an interesting question. I mean, the Organized sports in and of itself isn't the only way that kids can be physically active. And, and particularly, there are a lot of individual sports. Um, we surveyed kids nationally a couple of years ago. This was during the pandemic. And one of the key takeaways was that the menu of, of traditional high school sport options isn't really meeting the demand. Um, that, of course, there will always be kids who play, you know, football and baseball and basketball and soccer and some of those traditional sports we're used to. But there are many kids who who want to try more fitness focused activities such as yoga or dance or rock climbing or, you know, even archery was the top sport high school hmm. students said. So increasingly, I think schools and, and, and you know, nonprofit sport providers, even for profit, you know, need to be thinking about what are different ways that we engage with kids beyond the traditional sports. That's really interesting. And I wonder if you mentioned private companies and schools, like I wonder if, if maybe there's sort of a burgeoning competition there for, you know, schools that offer sort of the traditional sports that you outlined and maybe other companies that are vying for those same kids, but are offering things maybe that schools aren't offering. Yeah. I mean, schools are really one of the best places to engage with kids because they're all right there, right? I mean, they're yeah. they're there for eight to 10 hours a day. And so providing programming, particularly after school programming, not even necessarily the traditional competitive sports, it could be, but it could also be intramural sports. It can just be club activities. Um, there's a lot of value to that. One of the challenges is capacity, right, for schools. And that's where Thinking outside the box and trying to identify community partnerships is really valuable. So in terms of what you're seeing for regular sports activity, are you seeing a difference between boys and girls who are, who are playing? Yeah. You know, one thing that's interesting is that sports participation is increasing for girls and it's declining for boys. Now, there's still a gap. Um, and this was 2022 data from the Sports and Fitness Industry Association that showed that 40 percent of boys are regularly playing sports. It's still higher than girls at 35%, but the two genders are basically going in opposite directions. Why do you think it is that, that fewer boys are, are playing these sports? 
you know, we don't we don't directly have all the the specific results, so it's not really data driven. But but anecdotally, I mean, I think one question to ask is whether we're creating too too competitive an environment for all kids, and that that includes boys, right? Um, the idea that we're we're trying to win games, we're trying to make high school teams, we're trying to chase potential college scholarships. When we know that when we ask kids, whether it's boys or girls across the country, every community we work in, why they play sports, the top reasons always are to have fun and play with friends. Um, but yet what we're often delivering to kids, and this and it often includes boys because it's just sort of this competitive culture, is this idea of winning and you must compete and you must be excellent. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with competing. It's just putting it in, in context and balance and recognizing that there are many boys out there who just don't see themselves necessarily as athletes or feel like they've gotten pushed aside at really young age because of their ability um, and also because of, you know, costs as well are a significant issue. Yeah. Well, I wonder if there's a, a factor here also of, you mentioned like the sort of the uber competitiveness of, of some of these teams and leagues. Like there are, for example, a lot of people here in Arizona or places like Texas and Florida who just play baseball year round and travel all over the country, or you know, there are places where like you really focus on basketball all year round, or hockey, or soccer, places like that. And not only does it not really give you, these these kids an opportunity to try other sports, but I would imagine there's an opportunity there for burnout, a risk for burnout there as well. Absolutely, I mean, we and we encourage sports sampling. That's really important, and and encourage sports sampling until you're you're much older. I mean, even even into high school, you can sample different sports, but at least in in elementary school and, and, and middle school, um, we've got to let children's bodies, minds, and interests develop, right? They shouldn't be picking sports before that happens. There can be late bloomers who develop as better athletes as they get older. Their interests can just change. And just the variety of sports, to your point, reduces the risk of burnout and also reduces the risk of overuse injuries, which we see happen a lot. What role do you see competition playing in terms of kids choosing not to play sports? I mean, I think back to when I was a kid, and obviously there weren't really many video games. We didn't have cell phones, and the internet was not really a thing at that point. So, like, I'm curious, like, kids have so many other things that they can be doing now. Does that play a role in their decision whether or not to play sports and how to play sports? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, think about it. You can engage when, when we were growing up, or I don't know your age, but I'm 47. When, yeah. you, when you were gro growing up in the 80s and 90s, playing sports with friends, that was really how you built a lot of friendships. It was how you saw your friends. It was how you engaged with them. Now, sometimes kids don't even engage with each other face to face very much. They're yeah. just texting or playing on video games together. Um, and we, it's interesting. We often bemoan technology and video games for making kids more physically inactive. And there's some truth to that. But the reality is, I think video games have hit the mark in ways that youth sports haven't. And that is that they are youth focused. They are centered on what children want out of an experience. Um, so in other words, I think there's a lot that youth sports could learn from video games and just make it a more engaging youth centered experience. Well, so I'm curious about that because I wonder if there are lessons to be drawn from this report that youth sports and school sports can and should be taking to try to boost participation. Yeah, I mean, the the number one strategy that we always have at the Aspen Institute's Project Play is, is ask kids what they want. Um, and it sounds really simple, um, but the reality is it's their experience. It's not ours. And so if we remember all that and then create experiences based on that, based on what they want, not necessarily what adults 
think they want or what adults hope that kids get out of it, we'll be in a better place. And I think we will see participation increase. All right. That is John Solomon, editorial director for the Aspen Institute Sports and Society Program. John, thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. It's the first week of the year, and that means it's the time for New Year's resolutions. From eating healthier to exercising more, they can be hard to keep. But this week on the show, we're featuring Arizonans who made some out-of-the-ordinary resolutions and kept them. Our next guest made a resolution years ago that wasn't on your average eat less sugar kind of list. Karina Bland spent much of her career writing a beloved column for the Arizona Republic. But when she was in her late 40s, she told me she needed a change. So she took up tap dancing. Yep, the old-timey sequin-wearing kind you're probably thinking of. She came into our studios recently to talk more about it. And yes, teach me a little tap. You know, it was kind of crazy because I was, um, I think, 45 at the time. I'm 58 now. And um, I was kind of in that place where I knew I had kind of stagnated a little bit. Like I needed something new, you mm-hmm. know, and not like necessarily a, mid- a midlife crisis, but definitely something where I just wanted something different. And um, I had uh, gone to see a performance of Stomp at Gamage at ASU. Mm-hmm. And um, when I watch the show, like the dancers were incredible. And and there was this tap dancer who was, uh, you know, younger than me, but about my size. And I could feel the joy radiating from her, (laughs) from my seat. And I thought, I want to do that. And it took me some time to find a class um, because I didn't want to like, you know, suit up in a tutu with a bunch of six-year-olds or anything. But (laughs) but, um, so I found this um, amazing tap teacher named Regina, who teaches a group of women, kind of middle- age. Um, we're anywhere between 35 and 75. And I started taking lessons on Saturday mornings at a at a 55 plus community center. <laughs> and I discovered like while I was terrible at it, mm-hmm. um, I loved it. That's so funny. So terrible in what way? Like what is so hard about it? Well, I struggled to learn the steps, mm-hmm. right, first of all. And then I struggled to string them all together. I was always kind of like a half a beat behind and <laughs> and I would screw up. And, you know, when you screw up and tap, like everybody knows it because you can hear it. Yeah. And, you know, my tap teacher wouldn't even have to like turn around and know it was me. <laughs> what did it feel like, though, even though you were terrible at it when you first started going to these classes? Were you like embarrassed about it a little bit? You know, it, it, I was at first. And then I thought, you know what? Uh, I don't really care how ridiculous I look because just the sound of it made me happy. Mm. And the tapping. The tapping. I mean, it, you put on a pair of tap shoes, you cannot be unhappy in a pair of tap <laughs> shoes. And, you know, I it was one of those things where I knew I wasn't great at it, but it was okay not to be great at it mm-hmm. as long as I enjoyed it. And and I enjoyed it. I loved doing it. Did you grow up loving tapping? Like, is this something you, you aspired to when no, you were little? You know, my mom was a ballerina. Mm. And so I think she wanted me to take ballet, but I'm kind of not a ballet girl. So she put me in tap when I was about eight. And I think I just did it for like one session. Like I had my first recital, you know, dressed in the good ship lollipop um, <laughs> outfit. 
So one time. So I hadn't done it since then. Okay. When I when I took it up again. All right, let's give it a try. <laughs> you have in our studio here at KJZZ brought uh, several pairs of tap shoes, including my size. Yay. Which is terrifying. And then even tap boards because you have to have a board to tap on. Otherwise, you won't hear the tap, right? All right. So let's let's do it. Let's put on our tap shoes. Let's give it a try. <laughs> so tap shoes, we should say, are literally metal on the bottom. Like it's like a like a short dance shoe, but then there's metal on the toe and metal on the heel. Right. As and if, that's what makes the sound. Right, exactly. And if you um you know like when I was a kid I would like put quarters on the bottom of my shoes just oh, to I did that, make yeah. that yeah, make the sound. <laughs> so it's the same concept. All right, let's do it. Okay. So, I've got my board over here. Oh. You hear that? How much do you love it? Oh, it's really fun. Right? We'll start with the shuffling. Okay, the start with the shuffle. So that's just this. Hail toe. Forward. Back. Just your toe. Just toe. There you Am go. Am I doing it? Yes. <laughs> so then that flap that we talked about, uh-huh. where you go forward, boom, and put your heel down. So then you get like kind of three sounds, right? Okay. Flap, heel. Flap, heel. So da-da-da. Flap. Flap, heel. heel. So then you can actually now okay. travel, right? So you go mm-hmm. flap, heel, flap, heel, flap. I don't think I'm going to be able to pull that off. <laughs> okay, ready? Go five, six, seven, eight. See? Ta-da! See, now you're traveling. I think I pulled it off a tiny bit. Yeah. All right, put me out of my misery. Let's sit down and finish the interview. You did great. You did great. First of all, I can see how difficult it is. Like, those are tiny little movements, and it's slippery. Right. And even when you think you're doing it, you know, like one step might have three or four sounds in it. Yeah. And so then you have to kind of focus on putting those together. That's wild. Which is also kind of a cool thing that as somebody who's like all over the place all the time, you know, and I'm always thinking about, you know, what I need to do at work or what I need to do at home. And like my head's never where I need to be. Mm -hmm. But in tap dancing, you can't do that. You have to pay attention. You have to pay attention or you wind up on your face. And you know where we and we practice at the at, at a fifty five plus community. So mm-hmm. if you fall there, that's a big <laughs> that creates a big chaos and a call to the fire department. So, oh no! So you have to stay in the moment, mm. and you have to only think about the step you're doing now, and then what comes next. And you can't even think five steps ahead, right? Yeah. You have to kind of just stay and be in that moment. Yeah, which nothing else I do is like that. So that sounds like a pretty, pretty, pretty big reward, right? And you wrote about this, about how, like, you you learned this lesson in learning tap, and you've carried it through the rest of your life. And how long have you done tap now? It's a long time. So I was 45 when I started. I'm 58 now. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and, and like I said, it hasn't been, like, I'm not suddenly great. Like, it took <laughs> a long time. My son mocks me because it took me you know, a decade to get moved from the beginner class to the intermediate. <laughs> and now I now I occasionally do numbers with our advanced dancers, but I freak out. Like, I, <laughs> I struggle. I know it's hard for me. So, like, every, every level is a challenge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like with anything, the more you practice, the, the better you get. And mm-hmm. so if it's something that brings you joy, that's not hard. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about... Like, is there, was there a moment, was there a time when you felt like you you got over the hump in your head with, like, the embarrassment and the, you know, I don't want to tell anybody about this, and you ended up writing about it in your former column, and, like, you know, lots of people know that this is a thing that yeah. you do know. Well, and it's funny because, you know, I did my, 
like six months after I started, um, Regina asked if I would be in, in a recital. Now, mm-hmm. I hadn't been in a you know show or a recital since I was eight. And so I was like, uh, I can maybe do this. But yeah, I was terrified because I was like, what if I screw up? What if people make fun of me and my, you know, my costume pants were too short? And, you know, <laughs> am I going to look fat? And, you know, all you worry about all those things. But when we did it, instead of kind of focusing on those things, I stayed in the moment and focused on the joy that it was bringing me. And when we were done and we took a bow, like we got a standing ovation. And it was like, because people feel that, you know, it's like that woman on the stage at Gamage. You know, I felt her joy. And so that's what I hope when I perform, you know, people feel that too, because I feel it. Yeah. Yeah. All of this from a New Year's resolution. <laughs> right. Which is amazing because, like I said, no other New Year's resolution that I've made can I honestly say I've kept. This is a good one to keep. And this one I kept. All right. Karina Bland, thank you so much. Thank you. You have probably heard that our state bird is the cactus wren and our state flower is the saguaro blossom. But did you know that there's also state neckwear. That's right. Since 1973, the bola tie or bolo tie, depending on who you ask, has been the official state neckwear of Arizona. The tie, made up of a cord with a decorative clasp and metal tips, has a distinctly Western feel. One Arizona museum has around 300 of them, along with boxes of records from the Bola Tie Society of Arizona. Last year, we made the trek to Wickenburg to check out the collection for ourselves. I'm Mary Ann Igna. I'm the deputy director and curator at the Desert Caballeros Western Museum in Wickenburg, Arizona. We are in the Wickenburg's West exhibition, and Wickenburg is known for its bola ties. Vic Cedarstaff was uh, here in Wickenburg back in the 1940s and 50s, and he designed one of the classic bola ties and actually patented his slide. He was out on a trail ride one day and his hat blew off and he didn't want to lose the hat band because it was a real nice one so he put it around his neck and that gave him the idea well maybe he should make actually a tie that would go around somebody's neck that was similar to a hat band. He was the one of the ones who really got the state legislature to make the bola tie Arizona's official state neckwear in 1971. When Mr. Cedarstaff created his version of it. He called it the bola tie, not bolo. There's quite a bit of controversy (laughs) as to what it should be called. And he based it on the fact that the bola is a rope that's from South America that they use to capture ostriches and cattle and things like that. They throw the rope around the animal's feet, and it's called a boleadera. So he thought his bola tie looked kind of like that whereas a bolo is actually a machete-type knife. So that's why, in, in Wickenburg at least, it's called a bola. <laughs> One of the main people who promoted the bola tie uh, was Bill Close, who was the anchor on Channel 10 Cool TV for 28 years or something like that, and he always wore a bola tie on air every night, and it was a different one every night. <laughs> so people would send him... Um, ties promoting their different events and all sorts of things. So 
we were lucky enough to acquire his collection of over 200 bola ties. Uh, and se- several of those are on display here. TGIF, the one on the far right, were, that was Bill Close's famous motto. Uh, every Friday, he would close his newscast with TGIF. Some of the ones here, let's see. Well, there's one that's the scorpion enclosed in, pla- in plexiglass. There's one that's from the Navajo Nation Police Department. And it actually is a breakaway bola. So if somebody grabbed it, it would break. You know, there was the cord would come apart, so the police officer wasn't strangled by it. There's a little rattlesnake one. We had one gentleman one time was making them. One of our volunteers, and he made one from his pacemaker. <laughs> so, <laughs> but it was a very expensive bola tie. <laughs> We're going down to my to the curatorial offices. Um, I pulled some ties out of storage for you that you could look at. When we handle objects like silver, we wear gloves so we don't get our oils from our hands on the objects because it can damage it over time. Putting gloves on doesn't make it easy to open the bags. See, this is a Vic Cedar Staff tie, and it's got the two dimples on the back. And you can just take the cord off without having to put it over your head if you want to. They originally, they were call, he called them piggin ties because they, it looked like a, a piggin string, which is something they use when they're working with cattle. Uh, it's a tie. And, but then he decided that that really wasn't very exciting, so that's when uh, he changed the name to the bola tie. That was Marianne Igna, Deputy Director and Curator at Desert Caballero's Western Museum in Wickenburg. You can find photos of the collection on our website, theshow.kjzz.org. That'll do it for the Friday edition of the show from politics to bulletized to tap dancing. (laughs) Be sure to join us on Monday morning with much more. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. We are at KJZZ, the show. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us today. Have a great weekend. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.